Welcome to Focus on Success with Fozzie Acosti. Our program is designed to help you with executive function challenges. Our guest experts offer perspective, experience, and ideas to improve different aspects of your life. Now, here's your host, Fozzie Acosti. Hi, welcome. I'm Fozzie Acosti, and today we are talking with Cheryl Brown Merriweather. She's the co-founder, vice president, executive director, and international... International Center for Addiction and Recovery Education, also known as iCare. Um, Cheryl Brown Merriweather brings over two decades of experience in corporate HR management at AT&T, addiction recovery awareness, and adult education to the International Center for Addiction and Recovery Education, which is also iCare. As VP and Executive Director, she oversees and directs the administration, operations, and student support services for iCare's three divisions, Strategic Sobriety Workforce Solutions, International Association of Professional Recovery Coaches, and NET, NET Institute. Additionally, Cheryl is the, um, the immediate past president of GoSherm and active board member of Opiate, I'm sorry, Project Opiate, and the former adjunct fac- faculty member at University of Phoenix. That is a mouthful, Cheryl. I know it. You are a busy, busy, busy woman. Is there anything on there that I missed? Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience that I've missed? Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Fazia. It is such a pleasure to be here. And I agree. There's a lot there. But when you get to be my age, you have the opportunity to do a lot of things along the way. So yeah. But in terms of what else? I'm just a, a lover of life and trying to help others navigate their journey. And perhaps we'll get a chance to talk about that in a little more detail during our time together. Thank you for inviting me to be here with you today. It is my pleasure. You are absolutely a joy so far. I, I can't wait to finish this interview with you. It's going to be fun. Um, how? Um, so today we're going to talk about how to create a sustainable recovery-ready workforce workplace in today's chaotic work environment. That too is a mouthful and it sounds like it's going to be a challenge. So let's talk a little bit about um, like what interested you about HR? How did you get into that business and how did you tie that into substance abuse? It is quite a story. So Let's see. It's kind of like, where do you begin at the beginning? So, you know, I'll start at the beginning with a little bit of why substance use disorder, mental health, behavioral health are issues that are important to me because that really lays the foundation of whatever season of my life that I found myself in and everything that I was doing in those seasons. It always seemed to tie back to my family of origin issues. So as a child, I grew up in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. I'm not sure if you've ever been there. It's a beautiful state. My family's from there. Get out. We'll have to talk about that offline. I think we should. <laughs> but as a as an infant, I actually was given up for adoption and I grew up in an African-American family. I was saved from the foster care system and grew up in the home of an African-American couple. But, you know, life has a, a way of, of giving you, turning, you know, presenting you with lemons sometimes that later turn out to be lemonade. So though I was saved into this family, the father that my dear father that I grew up with, he struggled with an that al- in those days they called it alcoholism. So he today we call that substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder. But back in the day when I was a child, I was growing up in the household of a family where my father was labeled as an alcoholic. And at the same time, my dear mother, whom I loved, also struggled with mental health issues. Now, back then, they labeled that nervous breakdown. So who knew, right? But she would have these episodes where she would spend time in and out of mental hospitals to to support her to get her life back on track. So that was my family of origin, so to speak. And what I later learned is those things have a way of you know, just impacting and affecting your life and and the circumstances that you find yourself in. You behave certain ways 
because of certain things that you experienced as a child. So, but to my mother's credit, she was a school teacher and she insisted that I get a good education. So not only did I graduate from high school as a National Merit Scholarship Award recipient, but I later went on to get a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree. And I worked for a little telephone company called AT&T. Thank you, AT&T. They paid for my bachelor's degree. They paid for my master's degree. And because I was working as a manager in the company, I got a management degree and had a lot of experience working as a manager in that little telephone company. And then I also had the opportunity to work as a human resources development professional, also known as organizational development and training. And so that's why, thank you, AT&T, they paid for my master's degree that I got in human resource development administration. So it's like there are two sides of HR. There's the compliance side, and then there's the training and development side. So over the years, my experience inside of the company allowed me to get introduced to and get educated in both management and human resources and later jobs, because I did leave the company at some point, and other jobs allowed me to actually gain on-the-job experience managing and directing uh, departments within organizations that focused on human resources or human resources development and training. So my adult practice my adult professional experience has always been in those areas relating to management and human resources in the workplace environment, for-profit, non-profit organizations, small, medium, and large, you know, it's been quite a journey, but you know, weaving through all of that, I never left my, um, my interest in and need to learn more about behavioral health because substance use disorder and uh, mental health both fall under the umbrella of behavioral health. Right. So at one at later on after I left AT&T and did some other things along the way to try to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up I had the opportunity to work for NET Training Institute which was the umbrella or is the umbrella parent company of iCare that I now work for I started with them as a curriculum writer. Based on my experience, I volunteered in my community to work with the organization and help them write training courses. But it was a wonderful, I would say, divine appointment because in volunteering to help write courses, the focus of which were things related to addiction and substance misuse and recovery and those types of things, it really began my personal journey of healing from some of those issues that I had encountered along the way through my family of origin and other subsequent life experiences. So it was like, a aha, wow. So now I understand why I did that and why I did this and <laughs> like this. It opened up just a new world for me. And I eventually had the opportunity to join the organization in a paid position. And the rest is history. I have now been able to marry those two areas of my life together, my job experience, my education, along with my lived experience. And that has now given me an interesting perspective on things that seem to be relevant to the workplace today, particularly in this post-COVID pandemic era Mm -hmm. in which we find ourselves and people are really struggling. So I think I might be able to help them out a little bit. And that's why I'm Glad to be here with you today to talk about some of those things. Well, I, I think you definitely have a lot um, of experience and a lot to, you know, a lot to express about it as well, which is fantastic. You know, you're very articulate about what it is you want to talk about. You talked quite a bit about the um, 
diagnoses, mm-hmm. but is the health system, the uh, behavioral health system, is it broken or is it is it at a point now where it's meeting people's needs? Oh, my goodness. And broken is such a um, difficult word, but it might be the most accurate word mm-hmm. to describe the system. And it's not my opinion. I actually can support that position. And what I use when I talk about it is because I am an educator, right? I, I'm an right. A, a college professor and all of that. So I try to sort, I try to relate uh, information that can be perceived as credible because it came from a credible source, right? So what I refer to in response to that question is a letter that was written in December of last year by the American Hospital Association, the AHA, they represent hospital associations. So you're talking about physicians and nurses and healthcare practitioners around the country. Well, they wrote a letter to Congress in December of 2022 to both houses. It was addressed to Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell. And in that letter, it specified that the behavioral health care system is broken. I don't know if they use that word, but if you review the letter, they basically say the system is overwhelmed. The workforce is under great distress. There is just a mental health, behavioral health crisis in this country in this post-pandemic era. And the demands far exceed, let me repeat that, far exceed (laughs) what the system is able to support. It takes a long time for people to become qualified, credentialed, licensed, experienced practitioners in that system. And people are suffering from burnout. And the and I'm speaking of the practitioners, the professionals who work in that system, the physicians and the nurses, they are just like suffering themselves from burnout. And many of them are leaving the uh, profession. And so those exiting the system are leaving faster than those new folks coming into the system. At the same time, the demand and the need for those services is just exploded um, in this post-COVID continuing disrupted workplace and other environments in which we live these days. So it was that letter that I refer to to answer that question. So yes, ma'am, the system is under great distress and some would say broken and we need all hands on deck to try to support the needs of hurting people. Uh, And that's something else we want to talk about today. So how can we how can we change things so that it impacts the workforce in a more positive manner? What, What recommendations would you have to make changes to the system? Well, you know, under the healthcare system, there's something called the continuum of care. And it talks about, you know, on the one hand, you have things like prevention. We want to do what we can to prevent people from progressing, you know, to to needing larger or higher levels of care when they are struggling with a chronic condition, for example. So that's why all we the focus is on prevention with many chronic diseases, weight management or heart disease or diabetes. Let's let's do what we can to improve outcomes under the prevention umbrella. And as you move forward, you know, when people do struggle with issues, they need treatment. And once they they are able to ideally obtain treatment, they get better, and then they move into aftercare or maintenance. And in the case of behavioral health, we talk about recovery. People may be in recovery from a substance use disorder. So you asked a specific question about the workforce. So traditionally in the workplace with substance misuse, addiction, uh, other crises, because that's usually when the HR folks get involved is when something goes wrong. 
There, someone crashes a forklift or they get out of control at the holiday party and they get up and do something they should not do. Well, then it's like we need to have a conversation and perhaps you need we need to refer you to an EAP service provider or other form of treatment that may be covered by your insurance. Well, we've just established from question number one that that system is broken. So there are not enough treatment providers to provide the treatment that people need on the status, something like one in 10 for every one person, for every 10 people that need treatment for a behavioral health issue, only about one of them is able to actually access services and get that treatment. Maybe they don't have insurance. Maybe the insurance is insufficient. They may be part-time and not eligible, or you know, the company just does not provide it for all employees. So, what do we do? Well, we have to focus more on prevention, keeping people out of the need for formal treatment systems of care. And that's why in the workplace, I'm working to help HR practitioners shift their focus from being reactive, you know, waiting on a crisis to happen or incident, and then we, you know, engage and refer someone. Let's back it up a little bit and let's do more education and let's do more under the prevention umbrella. Let's do more things proactively so that people perhaps will, as in the form of almost an intervention, we are able to turn people around so that they don't continue to move forward to the place where they need more uh, critical care or formal treatment systems. That to me is the only hope (laughs) that we have, at least from my perspective, in the short term. And many of those things, good news, many of those things can be done with very little um, cost impact to the organization. It really comes down to engaging people who are willing and able to share information and help people connect with resources and, and other services before they, my words, crash and burn. We want to be proactive and help people. Yeah, with- no, absolutely. It sounds like uh, your role as an HR manager or an HR director, whatever position you have in HR, it sounds like it really impacts uh, your employees tremendously. Um, Let's talk a little bit about ERP. What can ERP do? ERP, and I'm guessing that's ERG. Would that happen to be? That's usually what I talk about is employee resource groups. Oh, okay. Well, let's Uh go with that. Yeah, employee resource groups, uh, affinity groups, those kinds of things, they do fall under the responsibility of either human resources or in the case of a company that has a formal diversity program, diversity, equity, and inclusion program, you know, some in on some level, there's overlaps depending upon the size of the organization and how they're structured. But, you know, as an HR practitioner, and I get in trouble sometimes for telling the truth, but <laughs> HR people are not always the first people that a, an employee will reach out to when they're struggling with a substance misuse problem, an addiction problem, g- under great stress or distress, you know, and not even personally, if I'm struggling with a family member who's going through hard times or struggling with issues, you know, those things also can in- affect an employee's <clears throat> their engagement at work, their performance at work, their attendance at work. But it's highly unlikely that those folks will reach out to an HR person proactively, which is what I'm advocating. But how comfortable are folks really to do that? Most people don't have a good impression of HR. I'll be honest, you know, in my in my past work, (laughs) I didn't have a great impression of HR. 
Well, that's why we got to try something new. What what is this saying? If you always do what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've always got. So let's try something different. And that's where some of these groups can really, really, really help. Mm -hmm. And because when we talk about employee resource groups or affinity groups, some companies call them one name or the other but they're basically groups that are employer sanctioned. So the company gives permission for this group to form. And you go back through history and look at when they started and why they were started. And they typically are intended to support employees that have a shared interest or shared need. So they're employer sanctioned, but they are employee led. So again, many of them were founded back in the day, 1960s and 70s and and in those eras to support employees based upon things like their race, their um, cultural orientation, their maybe their, let's see, disability status. You know, there, there have been groups that have been formed for, you know, the black employees, the Hispanic employees, for the women, you know, for employees with disabilities, for Hispanic groups. Those were some of the original groups, but now they've expanded so much beyond that so that the groups form around common interests, right? The breast cancer walk or Habitat for Humanity. So what we're seeing now is employees with lived experience, like I kind of peeled back the the door and said, me too, have lived experience relating to mental health or substance misuse. Well, groups are now starting to form Uh, being led by employees who are inside of the workplace who have some of these shared experiences or shared interests. And they find one another. And when the companies that appreciate the role that these employees can play to support other employees are supporting these groups to come together and to form and to reach out and connect and support other employees who have a need and who would feel more comfortable to connect with other employees who have those shared experiences or those shared interests, shared needs, as they would going to someone on the HR team about these issues. And they're popping up all over the place and they're having tremendous success. Some companies are forming them in partnership with their health and wellness programs. Others, again, the diversity programs and others just, you know, the employees are saying, you know, I I, I am a veteran or someone in my family is a veteran. Are there any other veterans in the house? Let's come together and talk about some of the challenges. And some of those challenges can cross over not just to accessing services, but let's talk about maybe some things that we're going through and how we're handling PTSD, for example. You see? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you you are a wealth of information. Thank you so much for, for sharing so much with our listeners. I really appreciate this. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, professional recovery coaches mm-hmm. as employees. What do you think about that? Should well, companies hire them? Well, yeah, but you know, it's like with anything else that's new, it takes a while for people to, first of all, figure out what is it and why is it important and how, you know, the who, what, where, when, why, and how, you know, and well, well, let's talk about that. What is a, what is a professional recovery coach? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you very much. And and I, I'm glad you asked in particular because there are different types of recovery coaches. And depending upon where you live in the country, there are people who are doing things that in one state are called recovery coaches. In another state may be called a recovery peer support specialist. And yet there's another group of certified professional recovery coaches. And they're kind of similar, but very different. So I'll try to be brief, but let me just explain it this okay. way. Thank there's you. Like 
two sides to the coin. There's the clinical folks that, you know, work in the mental health or behavioral health industry. They they get training, they get certified, they get educated. They often sit for state level exams under a state authorized certification board. Think about your, again, your doctors, your nurses, your mental health practitioners. So in that clinical world, there are in different states, they go by different names, but there is a recovery support role that is recognized as a clinical role that some states call recovery peers or recovery coaches. Some actually call the comparable level under the clinical umbrella a recovery coach or a recovery peer. And those folks, again, they're sanctioned by the state, recognized by the state, but they are different than what we at iCare call a certified professional recovery coach. Now, that first category that I mentioned, well, they may work in partnership with organizations in the community. I mentioned veterans previously, or insurance companies, they get hired and they work for often those employers to provide support for uh, individuals who need assistance with maintaining or or sustaining long-term recovery and accessing services. We need them. Thank the good Lord for those people and the states for recognizing them. But there are also other individuals, and many of these are our graduates, they uh, choose to work under the coaching industry umbrella. So they're not working in the behavioral health industry. They're working under the coaching industry umbrella. They're certified professional coaches whose program of study is recognized by the International Coaching Federation, but they have obtained training in how to support clients who struggle with substance use disorders, who may be in recovery from a substance use disorder, but who choose to work one-on-one with a professional coach as opposed to a clinical practitioner. And the clinical roles are very different from the coaching roles. They use different skills. They use different tools. They focus on different areas of support. So many of our professional recovery coaches have the lived experience that I mentioned to you previously. They've gone on their personal recovery journey and now they want to give back, and many of them are establishing their own practice as a professional coach that works in support of clients that need a one-on-one accountability and support with a recovery professional. And these folks, oh my goodness, they are, I have airline pilots who are certified professional coaches. I have really... I have nurses. I have folks who come out of Hollywood and work in media. You name it. I have HR practitioners. I have government bureaucrats. These are professional people. Not all. Some are soccer moms, you know, and they're they're doing their thing in the community, right? At the PTA meetings and, and they're going into their homeowners associations and the beauty shops and they're getting clients there. But these other folks, many of them are self-employed as coaches and they get their clients through uh, the companies that they support or they make themselves available to contract with companies who want to hire them. Think about executive coaches. If you have a high-value, talented employee, maybe at the C-suite level, or they just are like too valuable to do without, but they're struggling a bit with some unhealthy behaviors, well, the company will contract with the services of a professional recovery coach to work with that client or that employee one-on-one 
And, you know, it offers discretion, it offers support. And that's how our certified professional recovery coaches are obtaining their clients. And they are right, doing amazing things. They're writing books. They're uh, doing podcasts like this one today. They are bloggers. They are subject matter experts uh, doing conferences. They are some of the most amazing people I have met, ever met in my life. And they are mostly self-employed, although some of them do work in partnerships with treatment providers on the clinical side to just add extra, an extra layer of help to that workforce because we already discussed that the right, workforce right. needs a little help. But that's who they are. That's the difference between the certified professional recovery coaches and the others who are, you know, more under the state certification board system of care, which is also wonderful and valuable. But they're different because one is more clinical, one is more coaching focused, one tends to work in the organized formal system of care, the other is more self-employed. And the industry now, the the marketplace, if you will, now needs and is seeking for both groups. But we train and certify the coaching, uh, certified professional recovery coaches that are uh, recognized not only now by the International Coaching Federation, but our coaches have now been approved under the National Board of Health and Wellness coaches as well. So the program is recognized in health and wellness. It's recognized by the in the coaching industry. And it's also recognized in the addiction uh, world because we bring in the best practices from the addiction world, from the coaching world and the health and wellness world. And they're going out there in the workplace and they're making yeah. a tremendous impact in the lives of hurting people. You know, that that is absolutely fantastic. How long does it take for someone to become a certified coach or practice? I know how long practitioners go to school. But yep. What about a coach? Yeah, the great question. So, of course, it depends on your background and your experience. So if you're already a coach, I mentioned uh, ICF coaches, health and wellness coaches, those folks already have very valuable experience as a professional coach. So when they come to us, they're just adding the specialized training, if you will, on how to become a certified professional recovery coach. And that program of study include it's a blended learning program. So it requires about 90 hours of self-directed study that's broken up in, you know, four or five or six different modules where you go through and you study the material, you go practice the skills kind of on your own. But then that program also includes 20 weeks of live skills practice, which we uh, offer on Zoom as under the direction of a certified professional recovery coach, health and wellness coach, and ICF coach. I might add, she's an amazing instructor or facilitator. But so it's the blend of the 90 hours of self-directed plus the 20 weeks of skills training in the groups. And these schedules are offered during different times of the year to because we have students from 41 nations, if you wow. can't believe it that have signed up for this program. It's all online. So if you mm -hmm. currently, it's all only offered in English, but from all over the world, people come through this program. So ideally, most people get through it between six and nine months, depending upon their schedule when trying to get into the live skills. You know, I need a Thursday night, not a Tuesday day. So they'll align their schedule with what's offered during the year for those live skills. So folks, if they average about five hours a week, which is not overly burdensome, they can get through it in between six and nine months. And then they're a certified professional recovery coach. Now, for folks that may not have any coaching experience at all, 
we have an inter- introductory life coaching program that introduces them to this new industry, new career, if you will, and they, it introduces them to what a coach is, what the best practices are, what the competencies are, you know, how to start a business as a certified professional recovery coach. So they come out with two credentials. They come out as a certified professional life coach, and then they go on to add the specialty of recovery coaching. And because they're starting out learning about coaching as a life coach, it takes them a little longer. So they typically take about a year to get through both programs, the life coaching and the recovery coaching combined. That takes about a year. But if you think about it, it's a lot less time than going back to get a master's degree. It's a lot less expensive than having to finance a master's degree and then sitting for state boards and certification boards and those things, you know, it can become rather expensive and and rather sure. burdensome. So this way we can get really high quality, highly motivated professional coaches who know with a passion what they want to do in terms of impact, saving lives. If you affect one individual, you affect their family, their workplace, their community, their future, they can hit the ground running with the knowledge and the skills and the experience needed to have impact in less than a year. And that is just very attractive to many people, particularly when we live in the time such as we do when it's like the house is on fire. It's like um, we need everybody, all hands on deck, you know, to come and put out the fire and save some lives because we're in a crisis situation. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the pandemic has really created a crisis situation for behavioral health, which is really sad. It's a, it's yeah. a very sad situation. But um, it sounds like you've got some really great people on board working for your program. It sounds like you've got some really great people coming in as new coaches. So you've talked a little bit about the investment, the time investment. Mm-hmm. What is the financial investment? Good question. And it is, we think, a very reasonable low cost investment. So if you're pursuing the recovery coaching as a standalone program, that program comes in at just about $4,000. Again, it's it's a basically a, a nine, six to nine month program. You're obtaining 60 hours of ICF credit. If you're an ICF coach or hope to be one day, you can apply up to 60 hours. That's really a lot of continuing coach education toward an ICF credential as well as, as I mentioned previously, is recognized by all the other professional boards in the industry. So the the life coaching, well, we don't really sell the life coaching as a standalone. So the recovery coaching is about alone is about 4,000. And the two, the dual program, we call it, which is the combined life coaching and recovery coaching program comes in right at about $5,000. Okay. So again, it's a far less uh, expensive program than going to get a master's degree, absolutely, which can take three or four years and plus thousands of hours of of practice in the field under supervision to become a licensed mental health practitioner or other state certified professional. And at the same time, you can earn our credentials, which are recognized. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. We're highly respected in the field. Our programs are recognized by, you know, ICF and the National Board and and other areas. And so we really believe this is something that is both needed and the market tells us is in demand. And real quickly, I don't know if we talked about it, but I'll say one more thing. We have If that's too much of an investment for someone to make right now, but they want to do something, you know, we also offer a train the trainer certification Mm -hmm. for what we call facilitators. So there are individuals who just want to do 
education in the workplace or in the community around these issues, these topics. You know, substance use disorder is a mysterious, highly misunderstood thing, mm-hmm. and no one talks about it. That's, well, I mean, no, it's still a taboo. It's a it's taboo. No topic. one talks about it. So our coaches, our certified professional recovery coaches, asked us to create for them a a certification that would provide them with the training and the experience and the materials that they would need or could use to go into a workplace and do a lunch and learn or do Mm -hmm. management training or go into the community and do a presentation, an education presentation uh, around substance misuse. So we have facilitators, certified facilitators, who do training in the workplace and in the community. I mentioned PTA meetings. We have had Mm -hmm. faith leaders come in and go through the certification for the facilitator program. And they're in communities of faith doing education programs. And this program here in Central Florida, you mentioned Project Opioid in my intro. So we are so excited that, sadly, the opioid epidemic, the you know the fentanyl crisis, has had devastating effects in the workplace here in Central Florida and in other places. But our community pursued and received grant funding to train HR practitioners how to support people in the workplace who may be experiencing an overdose from an opioid uh, incident, fentanyl, if you will. So the grant was pursued by Project Opioid. It was they partnered with Career Source, which is our local workforce board that also obtains funding from state and the U.S. Department of Labor to support the workplace. So they came together and they partnered with us at iCare and our local HR group, GoSherm. You mentioned that. And we took that facilitator program, which is a 14-hour blended program, self-directed plus group activities where we talk about these things. But we expanded it with six additional hours of HR-specific training. And we have, so proud to say, we have trained nearly 200 HR practitioners. Wow. Not only in Central Florida, but it's spreading. We've trained HR folks here in Central Florida. We've trained them in other parts of the state of Florida. We have trained them beyond Florida. It's open to the public. We offer it three times a year. We're running it right now. It's got about 35 people in the group. Some are HR, most are HR people, but not all. We have safety managers. We have chief executive officers who, for a small business, they're the top guy or gal, you know, but they want to learn how to change their workplace culture to address proactively some of these issues that we're talking about today. And that facilitator program, it it gives them the skills to talk about this thing and lead others to break the silence and talk about these things safely. We need to create a culture of psychological safety so that people will talk about these things And then part of the certification is not only delivering a presentation and getting feedback, but they also have to create a plan for the workplace to sustain the momentum. It can't be the flavor of the month or like a pizza party of the month and then it's here today and gone tomorrow. No, we're looking for systemic cultural change in the workplace. And that is where they learn about 
recovery-friendly workplaces, recovery-ready workplaces. They learn about sober curious. How can we, they learn about drug-free workplaces. So they learn about these different options and possibilities that they can incorporate within their own workplace and they get to choose and talk to other people. Well, what have you tried? What works for you? Well, this is the problem that I have. Well, let me try that. And they create a plan and then they earn their certification and we continue to support them long-term with what they need to keep the momentum going. So the coaches are amazing. The coaches asked us for to create the facilitator program, which we did. And now that program actually won a national award. The Society for Human Resource Management, SHRM. Gave yeah, us congratulations. That's fantastic. The Pinnacle Award is the highest award that they give. And we won it. And the U.S. Department of Labor has looked at it to see if they can get behind Find it, you know, to implement it and roll it out nationwide. So we'll wow. see. But that, that's, you know, you're involved in some really great work. So that's congratulations. That's fantastic. Well, it's timing, you know, and I tell people it's the silver lining in the t- horrific aftermath of a terrible pandemic. But, but you're also doing good work. I mean, y- y- you know, there's a lot of people out there doing something, but to get noticed like that, you have to be doing good work. So congratulations. That's fantastic. But you know, it comes from people who care. And that's the other thing that I think the you know, the Surgeon General issued a couple of reports this year. One was about loneliness and, and isolation and how devastating that has been. And mm-hmm. the other is about mental health in the workplace. But for those of us that have that lived experience, we know what it feels like to suffer alone and not feel like you can reach out and connect with anyone and and get the help that you need. And having experienced that, it motivates us to do whatever we can so that others don't have to experience that feeling. So I am far from being alone. Again, there's just an amazing group of individuals that do this work across multiple industries all over the country and all over the world. So I am just honored to be able to share with you the good news about what they're doing. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I have one last question for you. Yes, ma'am. Knowing what you know today, Uh What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Just hang in there. I mean, I look back now at 20 and I, you know, I remember graduating from high school at 18 and thinking I was grown. It's like, I'm 18, I'm so grown, I know it all, you know. And (laughs) look back now and I'm like, I had no clue and you're just spinning. And the world today is spinning them even to a much higher degree than ever was as as challenged and as wild, because I was a bit of a wild child. I'm not now, but I was back then. (laughs) But, you know, you you really, really can get yourself in a lot of trouble when you're 18 and 20 and, and in that age group. And you really don't know much about anything, but you think you do. So my advice to myself would be just try to stay safe and try to um, just hang in there. There are so many hard things that I went through. You know, the wildness is often just uh, uh, trying to mask the pain, you know, Mm -hmm. or just not sure about who I am, but my advice to myself is, you know, everything that you go through, the good, the bad, whatever it is, it really can come together for you to give your life meaning and purpose. And you have no clue when you're young, you come out and you think I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I want to do this and I want to do that. But life is so in many ways, unable to be scripted, right? You, you, you think you're going to go this way and you get down the road and you find out there's the roads closed. You have to go another way. So you can get discouraged. You you know, you just, so many things happen that you really don't anticipate. So my, my advice to myself back then is just, you know, try to stay safe and just be optimistic because 
And and you can appreciate this because you shared with me that you spent some time in Florida. Yes. <laughs> we see a lot of bad hurricanes down here. Lately, it seems like they're coming much more frequently. Mm-hmm. And the destruction and the devastation that they cause in the lives of the people that are impacted by them because they're in the path of the storm it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Of course, it's not limited just to Florida. We've seen the fires in Hawaii and, uh, and California. I mean, in Canada now, there's devastation all around us. But guess what? Before the storm, the sun comes up in the morning over the beach and it's a beautiful sunrise. Absolutely. And after the storm, you may have some destruction there. But guess what? The sun comes up again on the other side of that storm, and it's this beautiful sunrise and sunset. I agree. Yeah. So that's the perspective that young people need in the world today, because there's so much that's beyond their control. And it's, I mean, the adults are having a hard time getting grounded and getting stability the world in which we live today. So, it, but if we can reach out and connect with one another and just remind uh, ourselves and one another that, you know, the sun came up yesterday. It always does. <laughs> it will come up again tomorrow and this season of destruction will pass. Just reach out and connect with someone and hold on and try to stay safe in the meantime. So what did... Um... If somebody wanted to get in contact with you, is there a phone number or an email or a website they can take a look at? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can, I tell people there's two best ways. One way is LinkedIn. I'm always on LinkedIn, Cheryl Brown, Meriwether. Uh, you know, I, I'm i online, okay. mobile or otherwise. But you can also reach me through the school. And I encourage people to come and visit us at icare-aware.org. I care little dash aware dot org. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Florida, but you can reach me through the school. Our okay. information is there. Send us an email, review our programs. Our, uh, you know, the, there's three divisions there the Net Institute, our nonprofit uh, clinical training organization. Right. Nonprofit school, if you will, the IAPRC, which is the International Association of Professional Recovery Coaches. And, and we, we will, yeah, and point. we will put all that information Perfect. on That's the, the um, yeah, on, on our, what on our, actually on our YouTube channel when we put up the information, as well as with um, the uh, podcast. And if you're looking to get in touch with me, you can go to executivefunctioncoachaz.com or you can go to 54 Media Group and you can subscribe to our magazine, Executive Function Magazine. And you can also take a look at our podcast there as well. If you're looking to get in contact with me directly, you can call me at 480-648-1122. And I just want to thank our listeners. Without you, this would not be possible. So thank you so much. And we look forward to bringing you a wonderful guest again next time. Thank you for tuning in to Focus on Success. Please join your host, Fazia Costi, for another program soon. If you would like more information about the program and what Fazia can do to help you in your success, please visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com. Thank you for listening. Without your support, this podcast would not be possible.